0: Good afternoon, comrades, and welcome to our third lesson on the Issue 1 breakdown of Tsar society. So we've had a look at, in terms of the pressing problems on Russia, we've had a look yesterday at modernization as well as industrialization. also having a look at pressing concerns on the peasantry, the urban workers, the, the whole policy of Russification. And really, what you should be getting a theme of and an idea of, is that we have a regime here that is very much outdated, and its support is also waning as well. And today, what we're going to do is we're just going to do a wee quick recap. Then we're going to be moving on to political opposition. So this is when we're going to be having a look at the different political parties in detail. What was their aims, their objectives? to start talking about Karl Marx and his Communist Manifesto and how it is that Lenin reads this and how he has his own possible theories and agenda when it comes to that of the the Bolshevik Party. So just in terms of just a quick recap here so just a note on Nicholas II because I think you know there's always this automatic definition of him as like a dunce figure that he is outdated that he is um ill-equipped for the job as well and there's a definitely an irony of um his accession here to power because like when he does come onto the throne in 1849 this is the time when russia really needs a of strength as well as also imagination to really see that maybe what my father, my grandfather, what my ancestors of saw through that of the Romanov period, that it needs to change and adapt. Because very much so, his cousin, King George, um, in Britain, you know, he's a constitutional monarch and he has visited Britain before as well. And you just would think when he has, like, travelled the globe that he has really taken upon him in terms about how Monarchy here really has to change in order to survive, but yet we have a man who does have a weakness, but also he's very limited in terms of his outlook when it comes to ruling a nation. So, whatever his private private virtues are, for example, you know, that we can categorically say that this is a man who is a devoted husband, that he's a devoted father, and we can't fault him on those two accounts. However, for the main job, the top job, as being statemanship, he fails abundantly at this. So there's two main aspects of Nicholas II's reign. The problem that he faces the Tsar is particularly a critical stage in Russia history, as well as the growth of opposition to Russia and that of the Tsarist regime as well. So the most pressing question facing Russia at the start of Nicholas's reign was whether Imperial Russia could modernise itself sufficiently, are able to compete with other european nations and particularly when we have like nations such as germany we've also got britain as well in terms of their industrial output russia's lagging behind it in order to secure your position as being a dominant power you'll need to meet with this quota of what other nations are doing or surpass that as well so would the new tsar in terms of the second be a reformer or would he be a reactionary in terms of like his father Tsar uh, Alexander III, who saw when he came to power at an early stage because of the assassination of his father Alexander II, first of all, that he wanted to overdo or undo anything that Alexander II had done. So, is he going to follow in that line in terms of being a very strict autocrat, or is this someone here who's going to see the plight of his people and actually want to make a change? But yet, there is a little doubt what answer that would actually be. So the assassination of the progressive Tsar, Alexander II, followed with a pierced period of repression under his successor, Alexander III, which made it very highly unlikely the new Tsar would reverse its predecessor's policy. Furthermore, Nicholas's upbringing and education made him very suspicious of change. It was no surprise that he continued the repressive policies that he had inherited. This further angered the, the intelligentsia, and the critics of the Tsarist regime, and they began to prepare to challenge that of Tsarism. So to really have an insight in terms of what really moulds Nicholas II's personality, and why it is that he's going to be so obstinate when it comes to any form of change, we can look no further to that of who his tutor was. And his tutor was a man called Constantine who was a chief minister in the Russian government from 1881 to 1905, who um, had the nickname the Grand Inquisitor because of his repressive attitudes. He was an arch-conservative who had a deep dislike for all forms of democracy. He condemned the growth of paramilitary democracy in Western Europe as a betrayal of their duty by the political leaders there. He dismissed the idea of a representative government. So when you talk about a representative government, it is a system in which the people of a nation elect a government into office and subsequently they vote if, um, who they wish and who they choose to be. So he believes what is happening throughout the world here in terms of representative government. He calls it a great lie of our time. To his mind, autocracy was the only possible government for imperial Russia and very much from this, as a personal tutor to um, Nicholas II, he played a major part in shaping the reactionary attitudes of him and particularly um, how it is that he is going to view things when it comes to 1905 and later on throughout it too as well. So particularly with the reign of his father, Alexander III, there is a great period of time around his reign known as the Reaction because of how things are being overturned and how we have very reaction policies. A lot of historians would say this is the last chance, really, for any form of survival for that of the, the Russian monarchy. But what is important to note, by restricting itself to a narrow form of nationalism and orthodoxy in terms of the church, the Tsar's government then has blindly denied itself the chance to adapt successfully to that of the changing world. So we've had a look at Russification which um severely enforced on national minorities by emphasising that Russia is superior and that language has to be continued on in terms of Polish language, this is something that's not going to be taught in schools whatsoever. So it's very um, restrictive We have traditional cultures are going to be put away. There's going to be a great deal of discrimination against non-Russians as well. And the nationalities that have suffered from this are the Baltic Germans, the Poles, the Finns, as well as also Ukraine as well. So there's constant state interference in their education and their religion. There's also been this growth of anti-Semitic behaviour as well. So as over 600 new measures were introduced, imposing heavy social, political and economic restrictions on the Jewish population. So this really continued with that of Tsar Alexander III. Since the majority of Jews lived in ghettos, there were easily identifiable scapegoats for the blame for Russia's difficulties. Anti-Semitic behaviour was deeply ingrained in Tsarist Russia. Pogroms had long disfigured Russia's history a number of the ultra-conservative Russian nationalists known as the Black Hundreds were notorious for their attacks on the Jews. During the reign of Nicholas II, the number of pogroms increased sharply. This was proof of the Tsar's regime's active encouragement of terrorising of that of the Jewish persons. But what equally noticeable was the eagerness which local communities followed the lead from above in organising that of the bloodletting. So amongst all this... These tight controls that Nicholas II is going to continue on, he's going to try to impose with, um, there's a hope that this will mean that we're going to have less opposition. However, the reverse takes place. So despite greater police interference, opposition now becomes more organised. A number of political parties, ranging from moderate reformers to violent revolutionaries, have come into being. The government's policies of reaction and Russification produce a situation in which many political and national groups grew intensely frustrated by the mixture of coercion and incompetence that categorised the Tsarist regime, and that was something that I spoke to you about yesterday. And particularly when it comes to um, Russification, when it comes to these anti-Semitic attacks as well, that we're going to have a more of a deep, abiding hatred of Tsarism. And particularly when it comes to Jewish persons that in 1897 that they have involved and they've set up their own revolutionary union, or that is known as the Bund as well. So, you know, if we have a look at you next know, second, he lacks necessary political skills, we've introduced more stronger sense of russification, which is discrimination against non-Russians, anti-Semitic pogroms, there's some resistance through that of the Bund or that of the Union. And um, Sarum has lost a critical stage in history here to try to adapt and try to that of survive as well. Yet, with all these difficulties, as we talked about yesterday, we do have economic problems as well because at a time when Russia might become something of a modern industrial nation, it can't really do so because, you know, it has inadequacies. And that we have um, Sergei Wit here who is going to be very much trying to push on with um, bringing Russia into a modern age. We'll have him and then later on we're going to have a man called Peter Stolfen as well that is going to try to look at modernising Russia. So in the 1890s Russia's industry has grown so rapidly that the term the Great Spirit is used to describe the period. And a major reason for this economic growth was in part of the output of coal in Ukraine and oil in the costs. Economic historians agreed that the sudden acceleration was a result of private enterprise and is sustained by deliberate government policy. However, the motives of the Tsarist government were military rather than economic. It is true that Russia's capitalists did well out of the great spurt. But it was not the government's primary intention to help them economic expansion attracted the Tsar and his ministers because it means of improving the strength of the russian armed forces a growing industry would produce more and better guns equipment as well as also ships an outstanding individual from that was sergey would here as well that he is hoping to compete with other nations of the west to bring about and he invited foreign experts and workers to work in russia as well so particularly you know we have people from France, Belgium, Britain, Germany and Sweden that are playing a vital part in trying to help to grow that of the state but uh, for Witt in particular that he thinks modernization is going to be achieved through that of state capitalism which is when we have the direction and the control of the economy by the government using its central authority and he's impressed with the industrial revolutions in western Europe and America And he argues that Russia could successfully modernise by planning that off the same lines as well. But he does know himself that there is this backwardness in Russia and that particular difficulties are going to um, arise from that too as well. So particularly we had a look at yesterday about how um, protective tariffs are introduced, about how Russia's currency then puts on to the gold standard. Which is when we have a system which the ruble had a fixed gold content, thus giving it strength when exchanged with other currencies, so it can't really fluctuate. We've also had a look at the importance of railways, and particularly the railway of the Trans Siberian Railway Network is the important one to try to get things um, better communication across the country. There's also trying to help with um, stock replenishment and also the trading of goods as well. So, particularly, we're having a look at trying to connect the remote regions of the Central and Eastern Empire with the Industrial West to try to industrialise the whole of Russia. Um, but sections are still incomplete by 1914, but and did not really greatly imprate, uh, improve with the East-West migration. So, the Trans-Siberian Railway proved more impressive as a symbol of Russian enterprise than really a project of real economic growth. One of its main hopes was that major improvements in transport would boost exports and foreign trade, uh, but yet, while see is trying to make a major impact on expansion, that there's going to be drawbacks in terms of you know, As we looked at yesterday, how there's no attention paid to Russia's architectural, agricultural, agricultural needs, and um, that. But it also made Russia too dependent on foreign loans and investments. And there's too much priority here to heavy industry as well. So there is many drawbacks and there's many criticisms too as well that he faces. And by the end um, of around about 1900, we've got situations that are also arising. So the improvement of Russia's economy in the 1890s was well, not simply a result of the work by Wit. It was also a part of a worldwide industrial boom. However, by the turn of the century, the boom had ended and a serious international trade recession had set in. The consequence for Russia was especially dangerous. The industrial expansion on the end of the century had led to the ballooning of population of the towns and the cities. This increase was organised and supervised The facilities for accommodating the influx of workers were wholly inadequate. The result was severe overcrowding. Furthermore, when the boom turned into recession, there was widespread unemployment, which increased unrest in cities as well as also into key urban areas as well. And we had a look at it yesterday with rising literacy rates, but this is something that can be a real serious issue that now we can have a more concentrated uprising strike protests that can take place here against that of the Tsar. So let's get on to the main objective of our learning intentions today, which is to really have a look at the political opponents of that of Tsarism. So really, what forms did opposition to Tsarism take during this time? So there's two groups opposed to Tsarism can be identified in Nicholas II's reign, which are revolutionaries and reformers, and by reformers we mean liberals. Now, revolutionaries we mean those who believe that Russia could not progress unless the Tsarist system was destroyed. Reformers are people that are strong critics, critics, and the Tsarist system has to change. It has to be moulded. It has to be adapted in some way or another. This could be by pressure from without on reform, and uh, from within to take place here. So we have the revolutionaries, so these are the groups that believe that Russia cannot progress unless the tsar system is destroyed and these are the populists, the social revolutionaries and that of the social democrats. So to begin with here the populists, so they regarded that the future of Russia as being in the hands of the peasants who must make up the overwhelming mass of of the population so remember you know it's average 77 to 80 percent the peasants are making up the total population here so they must take a lead in transforming russia beginning with the overthrow here of the Tsar system itself so populism dated from the 1870s as well as significant political movements of the period The populist leaders were drawn not from peasants, but from the middle and upper classes. These leaders regarded it as their duty to educate the uninformed peasantry into awareness of its revolutionary role. This involved going to the people, a policy under which educated populists went from the universities into the countryside to live for a period of a time with the peasants in an attempt to turn them into revolutionaries. The policy was seldom a success. The peasants tend to regard the students as airy fairy thinkers and praticas who really had no knowledge of real life or what their own life had also been as well. So, think about it then. If you have many populists who believe, right, you know, we need to go to the people, we need to tell them about how to adopt socialism, we need to tell them about you know, how life can be based around cooperation and sharing and peasant communes on a fairly small scale. But these people here, by going out and spreading this propaganda and being students and young people and are people that are of really a different class distinction, well, the peasants really then have nothing in common with these middle class youngsters with their strange ideas and obviously then are going to reject them. And particularly after this feeling here of achieving some sort of common ground with the peasants, and this is when they are... Turning into something here that um is terrorism, as the well, only way achieving their aims. So in eighteen seventy nine, this is when we have them known as the People's Will, the Narodovarovolja, and it's founded with the declared intention of murdering members of the ruling classes. This movement was more than 400 strong, um, gained notoriety two years later after its um, origins for the assassination of Alexander II, who was blown to pieces by that of a bomb. However, this act weakened rather than strengthened their populist movement. The murder of the Tsar had initiated many reforms, seemed to discredit the idea of reform itself and justify the repression imposed in the wake of the assassination. So... Whilst they have a clear objective here that they want to get rid of that Tsarism, they picked, you can say, the wrong Tsar to be um, the victim to that of their will because they have assassinated someone who was looking at terms of trying to issue reforms in Russia. So if you have someone like that who is trying to make a difference, but then their own life is ended in um, a bombing campaign then how are you going to get other people to, to listen to this? So it really does prompt a fierce reaction from the Tsarist regime and leads into a period of greater repression. So this 400 strong people's will then um, don't really further their cause uh, whatsoever. So the pop. Uh, The populism um, belief here, it lies in its methods rather than its ideas. Its concept of peasant-based revolution was unrealistic. The Russian peasantry was simply not interested in political revolution. What was lasting about populism was the part it played in establishing a violent anti-Tsarist tradition. All the revolutionaries in Russia after 1870 were influenced, if not inspired by the example of populist challenge to that of Tsarism. So in a way... Populism then generally helped to create a revolutionary tradition and more directly gave birth then to the Socialist Revolutionary Party, the SRs here, for short, which we will now have a look at. So they grew out directly of that populist movement. Uh, The economic spurt of the 1890s had produced a quickening of interest in political and social issues. Seeing this as an opportunity to gain recruits from the rapidly growing urban workforce, the social revolutionaries began to agitate amongst the workers. Their attention was to widen the concept of the people. And by what we mean of the people is the part of the population that the social revolutionaries believe truly represented the character and will of the Russian nation. So it doesn't simply encompass that of peasants, um, but also urban workers here as well, and to try to get them to see the reasons for wishing to see the end of Tsarism. So an important figure in reshaping that populist strategy was Viktor Shirov, who played a key part in the formation of the Socialist Revolutionary Party in 1901 and became its leader. He was a member of the Intelligena and sought to provide a firmer base for populism rather than previous passionate but vague ideas have produced. However, as well as all revolutionary groups in Tsarist Russia, the SRs were weakened by disagreements amongst themselves. Leon Trotsky, who was later to play a major role as a revolutionary, pointed to this division which described the social revolutionaries as being caught up in two competing groups, left social revolutionaries and right social revolutionaries. In distinguishing between the left and right elements, Trotsky was referring to the division in the SRs into anarchists, and revolutionaries, the left social revolutionaries were the faction who wanted to continue with the policy of terrorism from the people's will. The right socialist revolutionaries were more moderate in its approach. By in the revolution was the ultimate goal, were prepared to cooperate with other parties and working for an immediate improvement in the conditions of workers and peasants. Between nineteen o one and nineteen o five, it was the terrorist faction that dominated. During those years, the socialist revolutionaries were responsible for over two thousand political assassinations. Including the interior minister of the time and the Tsar's uncle, the Grand Duke Sergei. There were particular successes, but they had little to do to bring right a desired link to that of the urban workers. So if we just recap there, so their main beliefs here as social revolutionaries is the place centre hope for revolution, with the peasants who provide the main support for popular rising with the Tsar's government, would be overthrown and replaced by a democratic republic. Land would be taken from the landlords and divided up against amongst the peasants, and like the populists, the social revolutionaries accepted that the development of capitalism was a fact, and from this here that its own leader accepted that the growth of capitalism would promote the growth of the proletariat, the working class, who would rise against their masters, but he saw no need for the peasants to pass through capitalism. He believed that he could move straight to the form of rural socialism, based on the peasant commune that already existed, and they saw the social revolutionaries as representing all labouring people. So their methods are agitation and terrorism, particularly that for the left group, including that of the assassination of government officials. In terms of its support, well, peasants provided a large popular base, but by 1905 the industrial workers formed perhaps 50% of their membership. This is probably because many workers were recently arrived ex-peasants who recognised the SR party and supported its aims to land and liberty. Most had regular contact with their villages. It also attracted intelligence who wanted to make contact with the mass of the population. So intellectuals then are wanting here to make contact with the population. The SRs often bemoaned their lack of strength in the villages because most SR committees were run by students and intellectuals in towns and communication was difficult. Most peasants could not read the leaflets that the social revolutionaries had um, produced and from this here it, they do have a pledge to return the land to those that have worked it. So before we go on to have a look at our last um opposition group that are defined as revolutionaries, um I just want to turn our attention to that of the reformers, the ones that um believe that the system could be changed for the better for the pressure um within and without it, and they're known as the Liberals. So the liberal movement had grown significantly after the local government reforms of Alexander II in 1864, which set up the town and district councils called that of a semesta. Now, for a singular one, it is a semesto. When you have a collection of them, then it's a semesta. So semesto is Z E M S T B O. it's plural semester it's z-e-m-s-t-v-a within these we have a local area that has a small degree of autonomy to run their own affairs what can they do well they can manage schools they can manage hospitals they can also build they can retain the roads as well they do become very effective and they create a class of people who become quite skilled in local politics and social issues they included liberal leading members of the Russian nobility, as well as representatives of the middle classes, many of whom had worked for the um, semester as well. They gained a taste of greater participation in government, and the semesta has been called the seabeds for liberalism. The idea, if you can see that something is working on a smaller scale does that not mean that there's a case example that it can be done at a greater scale, that we could have a parliament, that we could have a democracy, that we could have a system of government where we have different uh, political groups coming together to really have a look at pushing for reform and to see about Putin the as a constitutional monarch because it shows here on a small scale if they can run these councils in these districts, then something can also be done on a greater scale as well. So the idea of liberalism prevailed in Western European was not very Russian and it took a different form in Russia. What Russian liberals agreed on was that reform rather than violence was the way to change the Tsarist system and to limit the Tsar's powers. Many others wanted an extension of freedoms and rights. Before 1905, there was no liberal party to speak of. Liberalism took on a more organised form at the beginning of the 20th century. In 1903, the union of liberalisation was formed demanding economic and political reform. The Liberals were a major opposition to Tsarism before 1905 and indeed up until the 1917 revolution. So what are their main beliefs here as Liberals? Well, it's civil rights and freedom for the individual, the rule of law, free elections, parliamentary democracy, the limitation of the Tsar's powers and self-determination for the national minorities. Some believe that the concept of the Zemesto should be extended to regional and perhaps national level. Their methods rather than violent methods, so they have political challenges, uh, channels through that of the semester, articles in newspapers, meetings and reform banquets as well. In terms of their support base, well, they did not have a large popular base and there were some active supporters outside of Moscow, Petrograd, as well as a few other larger cities. Their main support came from the middle class intelligentsia, lawyers, doctors, professors, teachers, engineers and other professional groups. They also had support amongst progressive landowners, industrious, and also businessmen here too as well. So we can see here, here's a reform group that's very different from that of the social revolutionaries. And particularly after 1905, we're going to see some of their liberal ideas come into being. But yet, let's see and let's turn here to that of Marxist, Karl Marxist theory and then have a look at the social democrats here which are the All-Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party. So in the 1880s, it seemed to some Russian intellectuals that there's no hope of a revolutionary movement developing amongst the peasantry. Instead, they had turned to the latest theories of a German philosopher Karl Marx. The scientific nature of Marxism appealed to them, It was an optimistic theory which saw progress through the development of industry and growth of the working class to the ultimate triumph of socialism. Marxist reading circles developed and societies and groups were formed. They believed in action and soon became involved in organising strikes and factories. The working class, not the peasants, were the key to the revolution. So Karl Marx here, he is a German philosopher. He spent the last years of his life in London and he wrote the Communist Manifesto in which encouraged workers to unite to seize power by that of revolution. He also wrote Das Kapital, which explained his view on history. His views became known as Marxism and influenced the thinking of socialists throughout Europe in the late 19th and 20th centuries. In terms of Marxism, It was attractive because it seemed to offer a scientific view of history similar to the evolutionary theories of Charles Darwin. According to Marx, history was evolving in series of stages towards a perfect state, communism. Each state was categorised by a struggle between different classes. There was a struggle over who owned the means of production, resources used to produce food, goods and so on, and so controlled society. In each stage, Marx identified a ruling class of heaves, H-A-V-E-S, who owned the means of production and exploited an oppressed class of have-nots, who sweated for them for very little reward. He saw change as being brought by the revolutionary class, who to develop and contest power with existing ruling class. Economic change and development, economic forces, would bring this new class to the fore and eventually allow it to overthrow the ruling class in the revolution. Marx was a determinist. He thought there was a certain forces, economic forces, chances and technology, driving history which could lead to the changes it predicted. However, he gave individuals a role in history. He believed that he could affect the course of events through the general pattern. Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under circumstances chosen by themselves, but under circumstances directly encountered, given or transmitted from the past. His theory gave middle-class revolutionaries an important role in what they saw was the true nature of history was and how they could bring it about. Marx did not think his theories were the final word, and he did not think all countries would go through the pattern described. He thought applied particularly to countries in Western Europe. He expected experience would lead to change in his theories, and he even had a name for this in terms of praxis, P-R-A-K-I-S. So just a word here on the Communist um, Manifesto. So it is a highly influential political document. Um, it presents an analytical approach to the class struggle, it, conflicts of capitalism, the capitalist mode of production. Um, it's not necessarily really predicting how communism's potential and future reforms are going to come into place. But uh, what it does um, summarise is, is theories concern the nature of society and politics, namely that in their own words here that the history of all heard of uh, existing society is the history of a class struggle. It also briefly features their ideas of how the capitalist society of the time would eventually be replaced by socialism and in this last paragraph of the manifesto the authors call for forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions but served as a call for the communist revolutions across that of the world. So what I'm just going to do here, I'm just going to try to pave the route here to communism. You'll, you'll see it in the power um, point slides here. But the first stage, you know, we've got feudalism. You know, the government is an absolute monarchy, the means of production, no land, land ownership, um. social organization we've got an aristocracy that is the the dominant group controlling the mass of the population the peasants that is who work on their estates peasants are virtually owned by their lords and masters in terms of revolutionary change the revolutionary class is the middle class the merchants traders and manufacturers as this group gets wealthier, it begins to break down the rules of feudal society, which hinder its development, example, Once the economy based on money and labourers to be able to be free to work in towns. From feudalism, then we go on to the bourgeoisie, the middle class revolution. So this is when the growth of trade and industry sees the middle classes becoming larger and more powerful. Eventually, they want to reshape society and government to suit their interests. Example, they do have a say in how the country is run and do not want landed aristocrats determining the national policy. The middle classes take power from the monarch and the aristocracy. The bourgeois revolution can be violent as in France in 1789 or more peaceful or could be more gradual as in Britain going through the 18th and 20th centuries. And that's something that you saw when it came to the hallmarks here of democracy. The next stage of after the Bourgeoisie Revolution is when we have capitalism. So, in terms of our government, that there's parliamentary um, democracy with civil rights, elections, freedom of the press, but largely is run by the middle classes. In terms of production, well, we're looking at industrial premises, factories, capital goods like machinery, banks owned by capitalists. Land become less important as industry and trade to create a greater share of national wealth. The social organisation that we have, the middle class or bourgeois, are Dominant or ruling classes, although some of the aristocracy may hold on to some positions of power and prestige, the mass of the population move from being peasants to being industrial workers, the proletariat, who are forced to work long hours in poor conditions for little reward. In terms of the revolutionary change at this stage, as capitalism, capitalism grows, so does the proletariat, since more workers are needed to work in factories and commercial premises. Great wealth and material goods are produced, but these are not shared out fairly. A small bourgeoisie gets increasingly wealthy while the proletariat remains poor. Gradually, the proletariat, or working class people, develop a class consciousness and realise it is being oppressed here as class. On to the the fourth stage. We're supposed to then have a socialist revolution, which the proletariat moves from class consciousness to a revolutionary consciousness aided by revolutionary leaders. They now form a great bulk of the population, whilst the Borshii are a tiny minority. They rise up and they seize power, in their class enemies. The Borshii, the socialist revolution, starts in a highly industrialised country. Now, we're going to deviate slightly here, because when we come to look at Lenin, you know, Lenin reads Marxist theory, and there is touches of Marxism, but because Lenin writes his own in terms of what he wants to see happen in Russia, then we have Leninism. And his changes are to Marxist theory, it's it's threefold. So the first one here is... So let's have a look at Marxism-Leninism. So, the first point here is how revolution would be accompanied by a small group of highly professional, dedicated revolutionaries that were needed to develop the revolutionary consciousness of workers and focus their actions. So, from this here, it's the idea let's disperse um, information, speeches, books. And you'll see that in Lenin's publication of What Is to Be Done, in which he's trying to encourage the sense of the consciousness to have a look at your country and what you could do for your country and how you could be a part of the country and its infrastructure. The second point here that Lenin believed the revolution would occur during a period of conflict between capitalist powers. The idea that um, Trotsky here even accepted, no, the weakest link theory revolution would start in an underdeveloped country, just like Russia, which is quite ironic because Marx himself felt that Russia would be the last place in which a revolution could be done. So it's quite different in terms of, you know, how it is Marxist theory says, you know, that the proletariat would move from a class consciousness to revolutionary conscious. But for Lenin here, it's the idea that there is going to be a conflict. You know, this could be a war, as we'll see when it comes to the Great uh, War 1914. Could this be the catalyst that really will spark a fuse here for undertaking that of a proletariat revolution. So particularly here, there's going to be a struggle and conflict between the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, and this will spread to a more advanced um, industrial country. So the idea that Lenin is hoping here that Russia will be the first proper communist state, and that they will be a beacon then for the rest of the world to undertake these same values The third point here is Lenin says that he does not think the middle class in Russia were strong enough to carry through a bourgeois democratic revolution. So that is sort of um, the second almost third step of what Marx had believed that you know that there's really going to be no French revolution style in Russia. We're not going to see the middle class really take up a mantle here to come forward and to spread their ideas and to run away with the aristocracy and to then bring forth that of capitalism. Because when you look at the the strata here, particularly, you know, like merchants and such are only making up 0.5% and you just think that they're quite strong. You've seen how, you know, they're trying to go and educate the peasants and, well, there's no really common place here with the peasants. So they really think then that the working class then is going to be the one to develop a revolutionary government on its own alliance with poor peasants who had a history of mass action in Russia, the bourgeoisie and socialist revolution could be ruled in into one. So if you're looking at it in terms of train tracks, like the idea that we're then going to have from this three-start tear-up, or as Marx says, you know, a socialist revolution in which the proletariat moves from class consciousness to revolutionary consciousness, and how then the bourgeoisie will be a tiny minority, that we move then into socialism and socialism is when you have the workers control of the state at first it's exercised through that of a government and that government is known as the dictatorship of the proletariat so it's a period where there's strict control necessary to make sure the counter-revolution like capitalism doesn't come back again so whilst the urban and the the peasants then work towards this like though there's still going to be a dictatorship to overlook its um overview to make sure that this period of power can be consolidated so they would um, root out enemies they would also try to dispel any non-socialist attitudes that you know there'd be factories there'd be machines as in the capitalist period but they're not owned by the individuals they're owned by everyone they're owned by the state in terms of the social organization that everyone is equal the class system is brought to an end wealth and goods are produced by industry are shared out fairly Everybody who has an equal entitlement to good housing and decent standards of living. Then you would have a transition to communism in which the need for the government declines because there's no competing classes, and under communism, there is no state, just people who are interested in managing day to day business or keeping society going. That in terms of its organization, that everyone is equal, there is an abundance of goods produced by machinery rather than by workers' labour, so everyone has much more time for leisure. People would be the principal for each according to their ability to each according to their needs. They take out what is from central pool and contribute to a society in whatever way that they can. But Marxist view of what a communist society was supposed to be is not particularly that clear. So let's just turn our attention here then to our social democrats. Um, have a look at their beliefs The breakdown here of Bolsheviks and Mesheviks have a look at their support and then we'll just recap um, some um, source perspectives here. So the Social Democrats came into being in 1898 and their aim is to achieve a revolution in Russia by following the ideas of Karl Marx. The German revolutionary, who had advanced the idea that human society operated according to scientific principles. He had asserted, just as the physical universe was governed by the laws of chemistry and physics, so too the behaviour of human beings were determined by social laws. These could scientifically studied and applied, Marx claimed that the critical determinant of human behaviour was a class struggle, a process that operated throughout history, and he referred to this as a process of the dialect. Now, a class struggle here, you're, you're talking about a continuing conflict every stage of history between those who possess economic and political power and those who did not. So in simple terms, the haves versus the have-nots. In terms of the, the dialectic here, um, we're looking at a violent struggle that's going to take place here. No, it's not going to be seamless. It's not going to come through acts. It's the idea that people will have to, to take what they want. For revolutionaries in the 19th century, the most exciting aspect of Marx's analysis was his conviction that the contemporary industrial era marked the final stage of the dialectic class struggle. Human history was about to reach its accumulation in the revolutionary victory of the proletariat. Now remember, the proletariat here is our industrial workers who have um, been exploited, and they're going to supposedly triumph in the last great class struggle here. They're going to come out top. So we're going to have this victory over the bourgeoisie, which are the owners of capital, the boss classes who exploit the workers, but are supposedly would be overthrown in that of the revolution, and then it would usher into the dictatorship of the proletariat. This dictatorship would be the last but one stage of history in which the workers, having overthrown the bourgeoisie in revolution and taken power would hunt down and destroy all the surviving uh, reactionaries. It would be violent and a bloody affair, but once the final class enemies were obliterated, all conflict would end and the perfect harmonious society would emerge. The attraction of Marx for Russian revolutionaries is easy to understand. His ideas have been known in Russia for some time, but what gave them particular relevance was the great spurt of the 1890s. This promise to create the industrial conditions in Russia would make a successful revolution possible. The previously unfocused hopes for revolution would now be directed on the industrial working class. The first Marxist revolutionary to note in Russia was George Pekhov. So that's P-L-E-K-H-A-N-O-V. He had translated Marxist writings into Russian and had worked to promote the idea of the proletariat revolution. Despite his poor and iron work and his founding of the Social Democratic Party, a number of members soon became impatient with his leadership. They found him too theoretical on his approach and the wanted a much more active revolutionary programme. The outstanding spokesman for this viewpoint was Vladimir Yulioff, better known as Lenin. So just to make sure again that, you know, When it comes to Lenin and Marxism, we do have this deviate. By the age of 20 here, Lenin's study of Marxist writing had turned him into a committed Marxist um, for which he believed the revolution was the way of life. By the age of 30, his dedication to the cause of revolution in Russia was led to arrest, imprisonment and internal exile. Indeed, he was exiled in Serbia when the Social Democrats were formed in in 1898. Lenin's greatest single achievement as a revolutionary was to reshape Marxist theory to make it fit for Russian conditions. The instrument which he chose was the Bolshevik party. Because the party was a vehicle of historical change, its role was not to win large-scale backing, but to direct the revolution from above, regardless of the scale of popular support. No revolution, Lenin wrote, ever waits for formal majorities. So particularly here, when we have our social democrats, so, Lenin returned from exile to Western Russia in 1900. He set about turning the Social Democrats into his idea of what a truly revolutionary party must be. With a colleague here, Julius Mertov, he founded a party newspaper known as Iskra, which is Russian for the spark and that is spelled I-S-K-R-A, which he used the chief means of putting his case to the party members. He criticised the former leader of the Social Democrats for being more interested in reform than revolution. He said under his leadership that instead of transforming the workers into a revolutionary force to overthrow capitalism, they were just following a policy of economism here. The idea that um, putting the improvement of the workers' conditions before the need of the revolution. Lenin wanted living and working conditions to get worse, not better. In that way, the bitterness of the workers would increase and so drive the Russian proletariat to that of the revolution. In 1902, Lenin wrote his strongest attack on Pelioff, the leader there of the Social Democrats, in a pamphlet called What is to be done? In it, he berated him for continuing to seek allies amongst a broad a group of anti-Tsarist elements as possible. Lenin insisted that this would lead nowhere revolution in Russia was possibly only if it was organised and led by a party of dedicated professional revolutionaries. For Len, revolution was not a haphazard affair, it was a matter of implied science. He regarded the teachings of Karl Marx already provided the key to understanding how revolutions operated. It was the task of those select members of the SD party who understood scientific Marxism to lead the way in Russia. The workers would not be left to themselves, they would not know enough, they would have to be directed. It was a historical rule of informed members of the Social Democratic Party to provide this direction. Only they could rescue the Russian working classes and convert them to that of true socialism. So just to recap there, you know, so in 1898, Marxists have formed the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. The leading knight was George Pernyov, who translated Karl Marx's work into Russian. However, some people found him to intellectual, not revolutionary enough. There were some serious disputes about the direction of the party. Some wanted to encourage trade unions to improve the conditions of the workers. Others wanted to focus on revolutionary tactics and the preparation of the working class for revolution. At the Second Party Congress, which is basically a meeting here in 1903, the Social Democrats now split into two fractions. We have the Bolsheviks and we have the Melsheviks. This was largely caused by an abrasive personality of Vladimir Yuliov, or Lenin. He was determined to use his idea of revolutionary party triumph. During the Congress, the votes taken on various issues showed that two groups were roughly equal. But in a particular series of votes, Lenin's faction came out top, mainly because some delegates had walked out of the conference. And he jumped on the idea of calling his group the majority party, Bolsheviks, which gave him a stronger image. In fact, until 1917, they will always have fewer members than that of the Mensheviks for reasons that will become quite apparent. So particularly here, with this um, split between Lenin and Petrov, came ahead with that of the Second Party Conference, you know, Pelioff here is trying to avoid confrontation, but Lenin is really trying to make an issue that they had the right to belong to the party. His aim is to force members to choose between Pelioff's idea of broad-based party open to revolutionaries and his own concept of a small, tightly knit and exclusive party. The Congress that met in a number of different places, including that of Brussels and London, was a very heated affair which frequently descended into a series of slag matches over which points to um, pursue here. So the London uh, police, uh, who have been asked by the Russian authorities to keep an eye on proceedings, Uh, tended to find the Social Democratics uh, quite a comical bunch. Their reports spoke of funny foreign gentlemen, all speaking at the same time and trying to outshout each other. But no matter how much the Social Democratics may have amused for the London bobbies, they took themselves very seriously. A deep divide developed between Lenin and that of his Iskra co-editors, Julius Murtoff, who had shared Pelioff's viewpoint about membership. Their quarrel was to do much personality as well as politics. Ritter believed that Lenin's tactics were fierce determination to become dictator of the party. Ritter's view was supported by Alexander Preskov, another co editor of that of Iskra, the Spark publication, in which Lenin has also co founded, which have described Lenin as um, thus. So he goes on to say that Lenin showed great cunning and readiness to do anything to make his opinion prevail. Frequently, many colleagues, many colleagues, and I felt that out of place in our own newspaper office, Lenin divided the world sharply between those who were with him and those who were against him. For him, there existed no personal social relationship outside the two classes. When the political principle was enunciated that the fight against the common enemy of the it it was desirable to present a common front by combining other groups and parties, Lenin accepted reluctantly and only in theory. In practice, he remained an idle phrase. He could not have acted that the principle, even if he wanted to, because he was incapable of cooperating with other people, it went against his grain. In a series of other votes then, the Social Democrat Congress showed itself to be evenly divided between Lenin and Mertrov. However, after a particular set of divisions had gone in his favour, Lenin claimed that his supporters are the majority, hence why we've got the, the Bolsheviks are coming into place and then we have the Mensheviks. However, following the split in 1903, the differences between them hardened into a set of opposed attitudes. By 1912, Bolsheviks and Mensheviks became two distinct conflicting Marxist parties. Lenin deliberately emphasised the difference between himself and Mertrov by resigning from the editorial board of the Spark publication, stating his own general uh, journal, so he gets his own, which is known as Vitewood, which we are going to call as Ford, as an instrument for Bolshevik attacks on the Mensheviks. A Bolshevik daily newspaper known as Pravada, which is Russian for the truth, was published in 1912. So what is Lenin and the Bolsheviks before that of 1917? So a really important point to note is that the later success of Bolshevikism in the October Revolution has tempted writers to overstate the importance of Lenin in a period before 1917. For example, Trotsky, who joined Lenin in 1917 after being a Menshevik, argued in his later writings that the Bolsheviks have been systematically preparing the ground for revolution since 1903. But in fact, that during the years 1904 to 17, Lenin is largely absent from Russia. He lived in Finland, France, Switzerland, and Austria, and his visits to Russia were actually rare and fleeting. Although he continued from exile to issue a constant stream of instructions to his followers, He and they played a minor role in the events of Russia leading up to 1917. So in terms of um, the main beliefs, so the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, they both accept the main tenets of Marxism, but they're still over the rule within the party. So to be a Menshevik, you know, you believe the party should be broadly based and take into those who wish to join be more democratic, allowing its members to have a say in policy making, encouraged trade unions to help with the working class improve their condition. Mesheviks took the Marxist line that there would be a long period of bourgeois democratic government during which the workers would develop a class and revolutionary consciousness until they were ready to take over a socialist revolution. The Bolsheviks, however, Lenin believed that the revolutionary party should be made up of a small number of highly disciplined professional revolutionaries operate under an organized centralized leadership have a system of small cells made up of three people so that they'd be more difficult for the police to infiltrate it was the job of the party to bring socialist consciousness to the workers and to lead them through a revolution critics warned that a centralized party like this would then lead to dictatorship so the best to fix here it's broad based, it's trying to encourage open discussions, get the trade unions to help out with working conditions, Bolsheviks, intellectual, small um cells, so you can't infiltrate them, but they believe that they're going to be the ones to lead it. It's not going to be necessarily the people themselves that they would help to lead the people and from that then they would actually have that dictatorship of the proletariat. So their support base here. So, um, their support mainly came from working classes. The Bolsheviks tended to attract younger, more militant peasant workers who liked the discipline, firm leadership and simple slogans. The Mesheviks tended to attract different types of workers and members of the intelligentsia, also a broader range of people, more non-Russians, especially Jews, as well as also Georgians as well. But really, here when it comes to Lenin, um the activities before that of the First World War. You know, Lenin's revolutionaries are recorded by the authorities during the period as merely a fringe group of extremists. Interestingly, um, the Bolsheviks are not listed by the police as a major challenge to the Tsarist regime. In the pre-1914 period, their strength of the Bolsheviks varied between 5,000 to 10,000, and even in February 1917, it was no more than 25,000. Before 1917, the Mesheviks outnumbered them. Numbers, of course... Are not necessarily everything, determination is already more important. But however, what the apparent lack of influence of Lenin's Bolsheviks before 1917, the fact is that the revolutionary situation developed in 1917, it was they who proved to be the best prepared to seize the opportunity to take over that of the government. And the Bolsheviks' readiness was one of Lenin's major um, political achievements here as well. So other key reformers, just to make um, a note of, so you've got the Octoberists. Um, which is a group dated from the issuing of the Tsar's Manifesto in October 1905, which has helped to create the Duma. The Octobers were moderates who were basically loyal to the Tsar and its government. They believed the maintenance of the Russian Empire regarded the Manifesto and the establishment of the Duma as a major constitutional advance. They were mainly drawn from larger commercial, industrial and land-owning interests. They had aims such as the rule of the law, in which they appealed for the continuation of a strong and authoritarian regime, uh, but to work with the representation and the representatives of the people to bring peace to that of the country. The limited aims of the Octoberists led to them being dismissed by revolutionaries as bourgeois uh, reactionaries who were willing to challenge the existing system. Um, also as well, we have the Constitutional Democrats, um, who are also known as the Cadets, and they come into being after 1905 Revolution. So, the cadets, the largest of the liberal parties, wanted Russia to develop a constitutional monarchy in which the powers of the Tsar would be restricted by a democratically elected and consistent National Assembly. They believed that such a body, representative of the whole of Russia, would be able to settle the nation's outstanding social, political, and economic problems. Lenin dismissed this as bourgeois political naivety, but there's no doubt the dream of the Constituent Assembly remained a source of inspiration to Russian reformers in the period before that of the 1917 revolution. The cadet party, though, did contain progressive landlords, the provisional uh, smaller industrial entrepreneurs and members of the professions. Academics were prominent in this particular party and um, they had a a very tight program. So they wanted to have an all Russian um, consistent assembly They wanted full equality and civil rights for citizens. They wanted an ending of censorship, the abolition of mortgage repayments on land, the recognition of trade unions and the right to strike and the introduction of universal and free education. So particularly this all Russian Constituent Assembly um, will be something that we will revisit later on um, in 1917. So what I'm just gonna talk to you about um is just a wee bit about Lenin, a wee bit about Trotsky. We're gonna recap um key points from this and um then it means tomorrow we'll have a look at 1905 and then we'll be coming towards an end here of um issue one because particularly as I said to you like issue one and issue two do have an overlap so you can talk about the war briefly in um, issue one, um, but at the same time as well, you know, war is a main focus point in issue two, and you can also discuss um, the concept of 1905 into issue two here as well, so there is a wee bit of an overlap. So Lenin here, um, so he's born in 1870 into a very privileged professional family, his father was the chief inspector of schools, his mother, the daughter of a doctor and a landowner. They were a family of mixed ethnic origin, Jewish, Swedish, German, and Lenin may not have had much Russian blood in his ancestry. According to Robert Service in his publication Lenin and Biography, new archival evidence about Lenin's early life suggested he was a self centered little boy who gave his brothers and sisters a hard time. He had tantrums and would beat his head on the floor. However, he was a gifted school pupil doing exceptionally well in exams. Service suggests that the Ulyovs were a self-made, upwardly mobile family, anxious to succeed. However, the involvement of Lenin's elder brother in an attempt to assassinate Tsar Alexander III saw the family ostracised. People refused to even speak to them. Service thinks this is when Lenin may have learned to really hate the regime at this time. Certainly he was deeply affected by his brother's execution and seemed by some accounts to have become harder and more disciplined. Lenin went on to university where he studied law and soon became involved in a student revolt. This led to his expulsion and was eventually allowed to sit his exams for a short period and practice as a lawyer. He was becoming more interested in revolutionary ideas and after flirting with populism was drawn to the scientific logic of Marxism. In 1893, he moved to St. Petersburg and joined the Marxist discussion groups where he met his future wife. He became involved in propaganda for a strike movement in 1895 and was arrested. He spent the next four years in prison and in exile in Siberia where he married uh, his wife and who was also a kind of revolutionary and they had a kind of uh, revolutionary working relationship. And he joined her with that was the possibly the happiest years of his life in terms of writing, walking, and hunting. After his release from exile in 1900, Lenin moved to London with his wife. He founded a newspaper, Iskra, the Spark, with his friend, Murray Off. He wanted to establish it as a leading underground revolutionary paper, which would drive forward the revolutionary movement. In 1902, he published his pamphlet, What is to be done, which contained his radical ideas about the nature of revolutionary party. He wanted to put forward his ideas at the Second Congress of the Social Democratic Party, which met in 1903. His abrasive personality helped to cause the split in the party into Bolsheviks and Mesheviks. He lost control of Iskra to the Mesheviks. The Bolsheviks played a relatively minor role in the 1905 revolution and then returned to St Petersburg only in October. But when the revolution failed, he left for exile once more. The years from 1906 to seventeen were frustrating. There was arguments and splits in the Bolshevik party and membership collapsed and Lenin Lenin seemed destined to remain a bit player in that of history. So in terms of his political theorist role, so he's regarded as important in this field. The body of his work, including adaptions of Marxist theory, have been called Marxist-Leninism and he really saw his writings of plans for action. So his principal writings include What is to be done, published in 1902, where he argued his ideas of a revolutionary party, so it was to be highly centralised, a clear line of policy would be drawn down by the central committee of the party. There would be a network of agents who would be regular permanent troops. He would be a small party made up of professional and dedicated revolutionaries. It would act as the vanyard of the working class who had not yet attained a revolutionary consciousness without clear guidance from the revolutionary elite. Then encouraged the individual revolutionary to be hard with himself and others to achieve these aims and there was no room. For settlement. He also published in 1916 Imperialism, The High Siege of Capitalism, where he claimed that capitalism was a bankrupt system and would collapse in a series of wars between capitalist countries over resources and territories. This would lead to civil war and class conflict within countries, which would then facilitate the socialist revolutionary. This would start in a relatively underdeveloped country, the weakest link in the capitalist change, and spread to other industrialized countries. Russia seemed to be the weakest link. In 1917, he then published The State and Revolution, and in this book, he discussed what the state would be like after revolution and, dis- and dismissed the need for a constitutional government. Existing state structures would be taken over and smashed by revolutionaries, the transformation of the economy and society would be relatively easy, the spontaneous will of the people would support revolution, and they would play a large part in managing their own affairs in industry as well as also in agriculture. So particularly here, when it comes to Lenin, we have a look at his sidekick here, uh, Trotsky. Um, for many, who at that time, would seem to be the heir apparent after Lenin's death. And we'll find out later on how it is that Stalin really iced him from the party. So he is a son of uh, a well-to-do Jewish farmer. He had a flair for writing and foreign languages. He too was dissatisfied with the society he lived, and particularly with the treatment towards that of the Jews. Um, Leon Trotsky was drawn to Marxism in his teens and joined a Marxist discussion group by the age of 16. So um, during these um, discussions, he fell in love with the leader of the group, Alexandra Skoloskia, and were soon involved in inciting strikes. They were both arrested in 1900, got married in prison, were exiled together in Siberia. Aided by his wife, he escaped dramatically in 1902 using a false password signed with the name of the prison warder. Uh, Arriving in Paris, he met a young Russian student called Natalia Sifov, and he lived for the rest of his life and they had two sons by her. He soon made the journey to London where he got on well with Lenin and his wife and was soon busy writing and editing the Social Democratic Journal of Iskra. They admired his writing skills, giving Trotsky the nickname "the pen." But at 1903, the Social Democratic Conver- uh, Conference would not side with Lenin. He prophesied that Lenin's concept of revolutionary party would lead inevitably to dictatorship. He remained in the Social Democratic Party somewhere between Bolshevik and Menshevik, but not in either camp. His first mate, Mark, is in the 1905 Revolution, where his orator talents led to becoming deputy chairman of the St. Petersburg Soviet. His subsequent arrest and escape establishes credibility in revolutionary circles. His analysis of the situation in Russia moved closer to Lenin when Pervos, uh, who is Alexander Hitman, uh, had developed the theory of the weakest link. Concerning the weakness of the Russian Boroshui and how revolution might begin, he was in America when the revolution broke and right back to find the Mesheviks collaborating with the provisional government. This horrified him as much as it did Lenin, and not long before he threw himself into the lot with the Bolshevik party. Like Lenin, he was anxious for the workers' government to be put in place and the earliest possible opportunity. So the key points there, just to take away from uh, that of issue one thus far, is that Tsarist Russia was a vast country with diverse population, making it very difficult to govern, that the Russia was an autocracy ruled by a Tsar who was the head of a large, unresponsive and inefficient bureaucracy, The Tsars used repressive measures and secret police to keep control. Russia needed to modernise and industrialise if it was to compete with developed countries of Western Europe and maintain its position as a major world power. The task of modernising Russia was one of even the most able leaders would find difficult. Nicholas II was not a good leader under these circumstances. He was not competent or decisive. He had little idea of the needs of his subjects. He resisted change and tried to preserve as much of the autocracy as he could. Sergei Witt led a motional process of modernisation which forced him out of office by conservative court influences and the problem in endangered by rapid industrialization and then a recession. Tsar's Russia faced challenges for different groups in Russia. The peasants, urban workers, national minorities and the intelligentsia engaged in forming political opposition to that for the government. All these groups had different and specific demands which the Tsars were not able or willing to that to accommodate. So, guys, that is the political opposition. Um, We'll move on tomorrow to have a look at 1905 with that of the Russian-Japanese conflict. Then to have a look at the 1905 revolution, which is also known as Bloody Sunday. And then we'll have a look at how the reaction to this is very repressive. We'll have a look at the October manifesto, And then go on to have a look at really how did the Tsar survive in the the 1905 revolution. So we're nearly there at the end of um issue one. So this comes into two parts. So make sure you have a look at part one on political opposition as well as also part two and continue to make your notes. We'll speak to you soon. Welcome to our next edition of our history podcast, in which today we are going to be having a look at a revolution, uprising, coup d'etat, strike that takes place in Germany in 1919. And to find out why this event was so important, but also to really analyse here the weaknesses of the Weimar Republic. Now, we've had a series of lessons now in which we've had a look at Germany at the aftermath of World War One. We've had a look at the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, also referred to as the Peace Paris Conference, and how controversial that was and how the Germans really responded to it by calling it a diktat, which, as you know, is German for dictated peace. Then last week, we were having a look at the characteristics of the Weimar government. So we're just going to do a quick recap on that. Um, then we're going to go on to have a discussion as was put up in the discussion thread on Friday in terms of like what is a revolution, why do revolutions take place or are tempted to take place and then we're going to turn our attention to what takes place in 1919 and then you'll have a, a secret top report to complete as your task for this lesson today. So just to recap here in terms of the characteristics of the Weimar government. Now it's called the Weimar Republic, the Weimar government, because it is set up in the town of Weimar. Germany has gone from being a autocratic um, state in which we've had the Kaiser in charge. And now we're moving on to a democracy. And it's the first time that democracy comes to Germany as well. So at the end of World War One. Kaiser Wilhelm II has abdicated, so he has given up his right to be king. He has fled to Holland. The new government was replaced, initially met in Weimar, um, as of security risks in Berlin, so it becomes known as the Weimar Republic. And the positive aspects of this new republic are about how men and women over the age of 20 are able to vote. So there is what we call universal suffrage, the idea that both men and women are given same right and same equal stances here in right to vote and that makes Germany even far more democratic than what Britain is at that stage because women have to be the age of 30 in order to vote so that's something that's quite fundamental in terms of its importance. The German citizens are granted the freedom of speech and religion so it means then now um, because under the Kaiser you couldn't really criticize him you couldn't criticize what was in the newspapers as well it was all very much controlled by the state And now we have freedom of speech. So it's very much like what we have today in Britain, the idea that people can come out and they can criticise Boris Johnson or they can criticise Dominic Cummings. If you're following the news at the minute uh, about COVID-19, that there is that freedom of speech. So whilst it's fantastic, the idea, it's also going to be very much to the detriment um, of the Weimar Republic because people are going to be criticising it, as you'll see later on. People can practice whatever religion they want all German citizens are classified as equal that German citizens would elect the president and also the Reichstag as well and the Reichstag is the parliament that the Reichstag made laws and appointed the government and that of the chancellor and obviously as well during this time as well that there is rights for people that you know they cannot be arrested without evidence that the police cannot come to your door and search your property as well without that of due process taking place. So there's many fundamental changes that are taking place in Germany. So just to remember that the parliament of Germany is called the Rackstack, that uh, we have a chancellor and the chancellor would be like our equivalent um, of a prime minister or first Minister, we're in Scotland. And then uh, we will have a president who would be like the figurehead, like our Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. So we've got now Reichstag, Chancellor and that of President. However, there are negative aspects of the Weimar government, and this is something you should have picked up on during the lesson last week, that the Parliament is elected for a system called proportional representation which German citizens would vote for a party rather than that of the candidate. And it also means, for example, if you have one party such as the Social Democrats and say if they could get um, I like, you know forty votes that they will get a percentage of um those votes as well because proportional representation it means that there's really no clear party can have a majority in government so it leads to a lot of coalition, and you can imagine politicians they like to argue that they like to bicker, um different political parties don't really get on well with each other so it means sometimes these coalitions are short lived. And it means then not a lot of progress can actually be happening for the people of Germany. They don't really see this. So this will also be its undoing in terms of how it could be seen as um, unpopular. So the resultant election of many small parties, no one party would gain a majority in the country was run by coalitions, which is majorities brought together by different parties working together. And this led to disagreements between parties and a lack of decisive action. Furthermore, that we have the Article 48 of the Constitution, which is used in emergency. So, for example, say if there is a strike or attempted uprising that is to take place, that the president can use Article 48 and um, for a short period of time here. Um, and he can rule absolutely without referring to the parliament, without referring to that of the Reichstag. The thing is, with Article 48, there's nothing really in the Constitution that says in Germany that no, know how often can you use Article 48, Um, how long can you use it for? Could it be like 24 hours, 48 hours, a week? So there will be abuses of power that will take place. So it eventually does allow a dictatorship to develop, which we'll see later on with Adolf Hitler. So the Weimar Constitution had a series of consequences for the Weimar government. It survived. A survival really relies here on small parties cooperating with each other. However, we can see of Article 48 that, you know, dictatorship here is a real possibility and what can happen and what can take place. So what we're just going to do, we're going to talk here about uh, like what a revolution is. Why do people want to revolt um, against their governments as well? And then we're going to go on to today's learning tension in which we're going to have a look at the um, Spartacus uprising. So a revolution here, it's something that is carried out by masses of people. So a lot of people. And um, they do have their leaders, they have parties that will organise and also in terms of directing the people um, as well. So if we were to define a revolution, it is the instance here where you have a forceful overthrow of the government or social order in favour of a new system. And this is one of the reasons why revolutions can take place. That so Maybe people want more democracy, that there has been economic hardship in a country, that they're wanting political change, maybe wanting a new leader after losing a war. Like we've seen it with Germany, but when the war is clearly being lost in Germany's side the Kaiser has to go and there's a lack of confidence in the existing government. So this here is going to lead on to our main bulk of our lesson today in terms of why this event happens in 1919. What are the Spartacists about? Why is it that they're wanting to have a revolution to overthrow that of the the Weimar government? Are they looking at political change? Are they looking at establishing a different social order here as well are they wanting to improve the country and wanting to have more power for the working class people in that of society? So particularly here when it comes so Germany here has become a republic at the end of the first world war. so that is where we have a government where elected representatives run the country without that of a royal family. Um, the royal family doesn't have any political influence whatsoever, and the the new person that is in charge of Germany now is a man called um, Frederick Ebert, and Ebert here uh, is wanting the Weimar Republic to be quite successful, but he knows that one of the groups that are not particularly happy with the setup of the Weimar um, Republic is that of the the Spartacus party here, who are also communist as well. So as far as Frederick Ebert is aware, so he is the head of this new government, he believes that this group, the Spartacists, are wanting to destroy Germany. He is wanting to create a democratic Germany in which people can elect representatives who work in the parliament, in the Reichstag, to pass laws, that um, he's hoping to improve social conditions here as well and he really has a fear that a revolution, so an overthrowing here of the Weimar Republic is going to take place here and the main contender to rival his own power is that of the Spartacus, that of the Communist Party here. Now what do we mean here by that of Communist Party? So this is probably when we will ask ourselves what do we mean by communism. So to really break it down here, communism is a type of government as well as an economic system. So under communism it's about creating and it's about sharing wealth. There's also to be like no class system at all. So if you think about you know, how you can hear about you no know, working class, middle class and how we've got people are very well off, you know you've got the monarchy and everything else as well. Under a communist state that shouldn't exist at all. So... Like individual people do not own a land or they don't own a factory they don't own machinery in fact like know the government or the whole community actually owns these things so everyone is supposed to share wealth that they create so it's supposed to make the system um, more fair to those that um, are like less well off so it's trying to have a, an equal proportion of the wealth in that of society so our communist group then in Russia are known as the Spartacists and they're called the Spartacus because they are named after a famous gladiator in the Roman times and this gladiator was named Spartacus who led a revolt against the ancient Rome. So they're trying to take inspiration from history to see how they can actually build their own revolution and hope for that revolution to succeed. They have been inspired by the revolution that has taken place in Russia in 1917. This is something I'm doing with the advanced higher students at the minute. So you know, in Russia, if they've had a successful revolution, you know, they've gotten rid of their keen, they've changed the whole government system, they think, well, we can actually do the same in Germany. as happened in Russia. So the Spartacus here want a new type of government that ruled on the behalf of the poor and powerless in Germany because it's these groups in society that really have suffered from that of the First World War. The Spartacus believed that power should be in the hands of the workers and soldiers' councils that sprung up at the end of the war. They did not want to work in a military system with long discussions and only slow change in the coalitions. In fact, one of the Spartacus' demands was to abolish all parliaments and transfer all power to the workers' and soldiers' councils. And that means, you know, let the worker, let the soldier decide what is to happen in the community, what is to happen in society, because these are the people that have suffered the most. No, they've lost wages, they've lost livelihoods, homes could be destroyed here as well. Like They're living um, in unhygienic circumstances. So they're the ones that know what needs to be done for the people in Germany. The Spartacus argued that if change did not happen quickly, the powerful groups in society would use their power to stop real change in Germany and the revolution that started at the end of the war would fail. It was clear there was little chance of agreement between Ebert and that of the Spartacus group. The scene was set for conflict with the more democratic slow change ideas of Ebert and the revolutionary ideas of the Spartacus. So remember there Ebert is wanting to really focus on parliaments, coalition, people to vote As well, when it comes to the Spartacus, it's the idea, well, let's actually have no system of government. So think about, like, we don't have a Holyrood, we don't have a Westminster, that people themselves can take control of what they want to happen and what they want to take place. So from this then, because no change is happening, the Spartacus will take among themselves that they have to... a revolution that they really have to take the same because they really believe here that power needs to be taken away from businessmen, high-ranking army officers and the wealthy sections of German society in order for people to really flourish and really thrive in this new Germany here. So Ebert knows that the Spartacus are getting ready for an armed uprising. So he needs then to think about, well, how can I meet gun with gun? How can I put down a revolution? And to do that, you know, you need to have a strong army, you need to have a loyal army as well. The people that you know will not change sides as well. So Ebert asked the army for support, but the officers in the army were less than happy to help. During the war, Ebert had criticised the war and that of the Kaiser. And you have to remember that the army here are very disillusioned with what's happened at the end of the war in Germany. We've had the Treaty of Versailles in which there's only supposed to be 100,000 men in the army. And they just feel that there's been this great sense of disillusionment. So remember like how we heard about the stab in the back theory, that um, Germany didn't actually lose the war, that they were betrayed by their politicians. So the army here are not very happy with the Weimar government. So um, particularly if they're supposed to be helping a man here who has openly criticized them as well. However, the army leaders hated the idea of a Spartacus revolution more than they disliked Ebert. So on the 10th of November 1918, Ebert here has done a deal with the, the high German commander of that of the German army. It's a bit like, you know, your enemy's enemy is your friend. So, you know, if you are not a fan here of um communists, but then again, you're not really a fan here of the democracy, but you rather have democracy rather than that of the, the communist um, party. So from this here, then we have an army has been sought in order to get rid of the, the, the Spartacus, get rid of the communists. Now, this new army, this new division that is going to put down the Spartacists, um, it's actually ex-soldiers who are going to be responsible for putting down this rebellion. And they're known as the Freikorps, which is spelled F-R-E-I-K-O-R-P-S. And the Freikorps are battle-hardened ex-soldiers. hate communists they hate the Spartacists. So think about it in terms of you hate something and you're about to put down a revolution or an uprising in which they're organizing like how much bloodshed is going to come from this. So the Freikorps believe that Germany has lost the war because they were betrayed or stabbed in the back by revolutionaries such as communists and this will spread on to know how Jewish people are also blamed for as well. So these people are blamed for it so if they have a chance to put down something like, of an uprising that they're organising, they're going to do it very gladly um, they're out for blood basically. So the Fry Corps here, this new um, ex-soldier division you're being headed here to put down the uprising are humiliated by the defeat of the First World War so they can see this as an opportunity for revenge in their eyes that is. So Ebert feared that the Spartacus might try to get help from communist Russia. At first, the Freikorps were recruited to protect Germany in case the communists attacked from Russia. As it happened, Russia did not try to help the Spartacus, but the Freikorps were ready for a fight. So what takes place here on um, a very bloody event? So in January 1919, so this is during the same timing as the sign of the Treaty of Versailles. There's large demonstrations of about 100,000 workers in Berlin. Times were hard, the naval blockade was still causing huge problems in Germany and thousands of people were starving and unemployed. The Spartacus hoped that these people would turn into a revolutionary force and fight for their revolution and that revolution is a communist revolution. Unfortunately for the Spartacus, they had not really planned how to do that So imagine if you are if you're planning a revolution, if you're planning an uprising, but you don't really have a plan of attack. You don't really know how you're going to achieve your objectives. You don't know how you're going to make that happen. So it doesn't really bowl very well when this starts that no one has an idea what they're going to do. So Spartacus supporters did take over the centre of Berlin, but there was no clear plans about what to do next. While Spartacus leaders spent hours discussing what to do next, armed workers stood aimlessly in the freezing streets. Many of them gave up and went home. So you have people there who really want to take part of this revolution, but because they haven't been told what to do, there's really no clear plans of what to do in terms of, you know, maybe you go to the post office, control that, go to that building there, control that, and see about knocking out communication lines, railway lines as well. There's no plan here. So people get fed up and they start um, going home. So many of them have gone home then. Then the Fry Corps arrived with machine guns on armoured cars, painted with skulls and crossbones, and started shouting. Within one week, known as the Bloody Week, the attempted revolution ended in a sea of blood on the streets of Berlin. Almost 700 revolutionaries were captured and executed by the Freikorps. So there is really no trial process here. People are not captured, not rounded up, put into the prison where they will await a, a trial. It's the idea here there is a shoot to kill policy. And it really shows here the hatred the Freikorps have towards the Spartacus um, regime, towards that of the communists. Their leaders in particular, they're never arrested. Both of their leaders, Karl Lepic and Rosa Luxemburg, uh, were arrested. They never went to trial. Lepic was shot while trying to escape, apparently. It seems very likely he was just shot. There was no way that they were going to take him to prison. And Rosa Luxemburg was also shot and her dead body was um, dumped into a canal. And this here is going to have long-term consequences. So imagine the Spartacus Communist Party are never going to trust the Weimar Republic again. So there's very much going to be a bad feeling between that of the Spartacus and between that of Ebert's um, Social Democratic Party. And because of this bitterness between the two of them, it's really going to help Adolf Hitler then come to power. So just to recap on the Spartacist uprising. So important to know, idea because of Spartacus. Um, they have a left wing group by left wing, we wing communism. That um, they are taking place in a revolution here, uh, uprising in January 1919. That the Weimar government is led by President Frederick Ebert and the Social Democratic Party. And they're challenged in their power by a group of revolutionaries called the Spartacists. Their aims as communists they want Germany to be run by the working class, they believe that power and wealth should be equally shared amongst the population. They wanted to replicate, they wanted to have their own like Russian revolution of 1917 by overthrowing the government, by establishing workers and soldiers councils and um, using violent methods to achieve this and they're led by Karl Lepic and Rosa Luxemburg. That in January 1919, 100,000 workers went on strike and demonstrated in the centre of Berlin. This demonstration was taken over by the Spartacus leadership. Newspaper and communication buildings were seized and the demonstrators armed themselves. However, many protesters returned home frustrated at the lack of planning by the Spartacists. The government which moved to Weimar to avoid the violence employed the Freikorps, and remember the Freikorps are a bunch here of ex-army soldiers who hate the communists, and they are employed by Ebert to put down this uprising. So over 100 workers are killed, um, even those who had surrendered um, have been executed, and it's known as the Bloody Week. So in the aftermath that Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, who are the leaders of the Spartacists, are arrested and brutally murdered by the Freikorps, communica- the, communi- the, communi- the, communists. the Communists and many of Germany's working class developed a hatred of that of the Social Democrats because they feel they can't be trusted now after the way they put down this uprising. So the Spartacus revolt had serious percussions for the Weimar government. When power was threatened by a growing Nazi party, the Communist and Social Democrat parties would not set aside their differences in order to stop Adolf Hitler. So that is our lesson today on the Spartacus uprising. I'm just going to upload the PowerPoint and the task with that. And then we'll be moving on to hyperinflation in Germany, which is a very bad time for Germany, high levels of economic um, pressure in which money is absolutely worthless and people are running around in wheelbarrows with all this money and people are losing their wages their pensions and people who've retired have to go back to work and we're going to really set the scene here about you know how popular is the weimar republic and how well do they deal with these crises so speak to you soon